a quick advert before we begin. At the end of June, we are running QConfess London, a week of events to help teams bridge the communication gap between IT and business. Learn the fundamentals of BDD and Cucumber in our two-day training course, led by creator of Cucumber and part-time host of this podcast, Aslak Helasoy. At QCup London, you'll hear plenty of BDD war stories, how a Fortune 500 company went test-first and dramatically increased code quality, and why designers should care about BDD too. There's lots more information about our events at qconfest.cucumber.io or check out the show notes. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wynn, and today we're going to talk about BDD in banking. BDD is now used across lots of different uh, financial institutions. And our guest today, Simon Powers, has recently worked with one particular financial institution to help them implement BDD. And Simon and I met uh, I don't know, was it about a year ago when well, he brought it must be about a year ago, I'd say, yeah, maybe a bit longer. Yeah. World famous, incredible Sharon Bowman to London. Yeah. And uh, I had the privilege of going on her training course, um, which Simon had organised. And that was, how, that was how we met. Yeah, it's how time flies. It's, uh, you know, a year's gone by already. And uh, so many amazing things have gone on in the last year. Um, but yeah, it's uh, good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so when we last met, you were telling me this story about, because um, I came and did a talk at your evening thing about BDD, and there were we were mm. in a financial institution, um, spread betting company, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, you were telling me, a sto- this told me this story, and then you told me there was a blog post, and I read the blog post, and I said, well, it'd be good to have you come on and tell everybody the story on the on the podcast. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, um, so, so my role is uh, sort of, agile lean type coach person who uh, tends to go into large organizations and try to uh, try to make them better try to get people to deliver stuff and and, uh, work together in a more collaborative way and one of the uh, ways in which we uh, one of the challenges in which which we come across is uh, is various enablers and one of those enablers is a technical enabler of making sure that we actually have quality software um, and it's really important that uh, people are able to collaborate on at a code level so that we can actually get flow through the organization um, and prioritization at a systems level. So uh, BDD is actually an enabler for Agile at scale. And so that's the approach that uh, where I'm coming at it from. And, uh, and I, there's a little story which, as Matt says, that uh, it's a casual true case, case study. Uh, this was actually at BNP Paribas. Um, and this was a, a large, which is a large French bank, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a, a big piece of software there with multiple teams. And uh, what we noticed was is that the uh, defect rate. Uh, we measured the defect rate. So the defect rate is uh, the amount of time which software developers are spending on the software fixing things which we thought were done. So this could be, it's basically bugs, uh, things that were built incorrectly, perhaps because of misunderstanding, or things which uh, we thought were finished but actually are coming back with, with challenges. Now, the challenge here was that the actual defect rate was increasing. 
So we were at about 35%. So that's 35% of the team's time spent fixing things which we'd already thought were fixed. So that's like pretty much Monday and Tuesday of every week just yeah. wasted. Being One third of the time, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And uh, the challenge with this as well is that uh, bugs don't come in in a nice orderly fashion, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and quite often they're critical. So this is a real disruptor. So if you're thinking about scrum teams working and uh, agreeing how much work roughly they're going to take on, uh, they're creating velocity, uh, a historical record of how much they've got done in, in a couple of weeks. And then you plot that velocity back and you try to do some kind of forecasting based on how much work we think we're going to get done. And, uh, and then along comes a whole load of priority bugs right in the middle of the sprint and throws out all of the uh, uh, estimation or planning that you're doing and creates a variable, uh, and this is the trouble, the variable amount of work coming in from the side uh, in bugs and throws out any kind of stable velocity. So not only is the quality decreasing because the, the, the rate had been going up, so we got to 35%, but a few months before it was only 33%, 34%, 35%. So not only is the quality decreasing, customers are obviously um, unhappy because a third of the time we're getting with bugs in, um, but we're also losing our ability to predict. So not good situation. Um, so that's, what, that's where we were. And uh, so the job was to what are we going to do about it? How are we going to fix this problem? Um, so luckily, uh, from uh, previous roles, um, I'd come across BDD and, uh, and some of Matt's work previous to that. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for your hard work in that area because it totally <laughs> saved the day. And um, so what we did is we looked at um, building in some automation. We wanted to automate these tests. We had uh, various manual testers, which in this case have been uh, outsourced to various parts of the world, separate than the delivery team. And so we naturally had this uh, sort of sequential steps within the process. And uh, a lot of that was manual testing. Uh, and so what we did is we had a look. The first uh, point of anything is to make things transparent. So, you know, we did put some uh, code measurement tools in uh, to have a look at whether we had any unit tests and what was going on with that. We had about a 4% unit test coverage. So pretty much one developer once had written some tests. <laughs> So, um, so you know, you could call this legacy code. And, uh, and so what had happened was um, there was no real way of measuring the quality of this code. It was kind of, you could look through it manually for sure. But, um, you know, the only way that we could really measure it was the defect rate. So the first thing was to make things transparent, get some uh, code metrics in there, see, see, what the, see where the areas of complexity are, compare that to where the... Um, where the bugs are coming from, and try to have some area of where we could focus on. This is a large application with 30-plus uh, developers working on it with some pretty complex code. So uh, so what we started off doing was uh, saying, right, well, we, we want to try and bring in some automation, but what does that actually mean? You know, where do we even start with this? So we, we also needed some buy-in from the business because obviously there are features to deliver. And uh, this is going to cost money. This is going to cost people's time. And uh, we've, got to, we've got to convince our product owner that, uh, that, that, that uh, we're going to spend some time building some automated tests, putting a framework in, and that that's going to bring back some kind of benefit. So luckily, because we had the stats on the 35% the that was increasing, it was pretty obvious that we needed to do something. This is a strategic long-term application, as most applications are in banks, and so that it was worth some kind of investment. We didn't want this to get to the point where the application's obsolete. There's a lot of stuff riding on this. Yeah. 
So, um, so what we did is we decided we negotiated with the product owner based on a use case that, uh, or a business case that we would uh, mm. at least stabilize, hopefully reduce the level of bugs and the level of unpredictability coming in. So that's kind of the benefit that we're getting out of this. Um, and, uh, and for that, what we did is we agreed that we would have a, about 25% of the team's time uh, to put in some unit tests uh, and to see where we went with that. So you were going to go from having 35% of the team's time spent on bugs, so leaving 65% to add, continue adding value. Yeah. So now you're going to have still 35% fixing bugs, 25% yeah. trying to invest in the long term to reduce that defect rate. That's correct. So now you're left with 40% to add value. Yeah, so they're going to lose. Value. So I guess you're right. So they're losing 25% of capacity. 25%. But yeah. Um, we're not looking at this, um, that it's 25% forever. This is to um, put in yeah. uh, some test frameworks and to, uh, to learn about testing. So what we did is we, um, we, we installed some, uh, we installed the uh, test frameworks. And what we did is we decided that for the first three months, and this is roughly how long it took, three months at 25% um, uh, 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 t- time, 25% of the developer's time would be spent on learning about tests and how to build them, putting the frameworks in. Now, we had a fairly complex data model, so lots and lots of tables from the database, lots of complex code, and what we realized is is that developers were starting to estimate stories instead of one day or one story point or whatever, that one story point story was now becoming five, six, seven, eight story point size because of all the testing that they were having to do. So this is further right. decreasing what people were thinking of in the value. So you've only got, uh, what do we say, 40-odd percent of value, but what we're actually getting done in the value is even higher. I mean, sorry, even less. The story yeah. points are taking even longer because they've got to implement the tests. So obviously not, not a good situation to be faced with. So, um, so what we did is we said, right, for three months we're going to deal with this. We're going to invest in writing some uh, component code, which is uh, going to help us with our tests. We're going to put some framework around the tests. We're going to write some data helpers. We're going to make sure that the time it takes to write tests is minimal. And so this is what I called the science of testing. There's not much art to it. It's basically building the stuff, putting the frameworks in, getting the mechanics of testing working, automated testing. Yeah, so making it easy to be able to write tests, not necessarily writing all that many of them in itself but making it easy yeah. making it the path, path of least resistance to be able to exactly write a test as well and, as you write the code and, yeah and many of the developers hadn't written tests before so th- th- these are developers i mean I, I mean i'm sure sure you know that when you start writing tests it changes the way you write code and uh, so we had some improvement to do in terms of the actual skill level and quality of coders to actually get into tests so this was the first three months getting everybody up skilled with writing tests getting some frameworks in and writing some really good uh, um, bdd style gherkin style tests so at the end of that three months we had uh, got those uh, story estimates down from the eight story points back down instead of a one story point of where it was when no one was writing any tests it was probably like a, a two but really um, probably you're adding like you know a few percentage of extra time onto mm-hmm. a story with no tests but the difference is is that we um, as we actually found an additional benefit here is that um that we were getting a lot less uh, functionality written, which was incorrect. 
So typically uh, what was happening before was the product owner or um, would engage a BA. The BA would then translate. They would then come and talk to the development team. The development team would then go and code it. The product owner would then look at it and say, what on earth have you done? <laughs> because this isn't what I asked for at all. And, um, and so we, it actually is a side effect to address that problem. And, uh, and, and so now what was happening was is product owners were talking directly to the development team and they were helping starting to write these tests as well. Right. And this led in nicely into the next three-month block because this is, we've done the science of testing, getting the frameworks in. The next three months was really the art of testing. So this was where product owners actually got to write the test themselves. And uh, with some support, and they co-created in many cases. Some product owners really got it. So some BAs um, who were working on the team totally got it and could write their own tests. They even asked for a development environment for the first time. They actually had their own development environment, and they were writing tests directly into the uh, development environment, which the, the developers would then uh, wire the code up yeah. to actually execute those tests. Some of the product owners, um, some of the um, the BAs and product owners didn't feel comfortable with that, and they would write an approximation um, either in in Jira or somewhere else as part of the ticket. Developer would copy that into the development environment and tidy it up and make the syntax correct to make sure there was no uh, yeah, yeah. Um, spelling mistakes or the rest of it. So really, what we did in the second. Um, the second three months was crack the art of testing and that really eliminated the problems where we had uh, building the wrong things and of course all the while the developers are getting better at testing product owners are getting better at communicating and uh, we're getting a much better throughput so in terms of the defect rate pretty much at the end of the first three months um, there wasn't really much reduction in the defect rate but by the right. end of the first so you paid, paid three all months, of that sort of investment in to skilling yeah. up the developers to be good at testing, building the testing yeah. infrastructure, but you hadn't really started mm. to reap the rewards yet because you hadn't actually been writing that many tests or at least not using the tests as that sort of early feedback of, are we even building the right thing? It wasn't Correct. until that second three-month period where you started to kind of push the push the testing really over to the left and have the, the feedback happening before the tests even got written, before the code got written, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. And so um, what we found was that at the end of that six-month period, the second block of three, month, three months, um, was that the defect rate in new code, which was now at about 80% test coverage, so all greenfield code that we were adding to the project, we now had about 80 90% test coverage. So the only things that weren't covered were constructors and various other stuff, yeah. which we didn't, bother, we didn't bother to test. The payoff was just too low. So all of the important stuff, uh, about 80% odd test coverage, we were getting a zero defect on new code. Woo! So over the next, uh, yeah, exactly, zero defects. So, so, and this is just on new code. So, our, um, so the legacy stuff, all the rest of the, the stuff, at that point we were seeing very little reduction at that point in uh, some of the defect stuff. But all new code, we didn't, and actually rolling on a, a year ahead, there was uh, pretty much, you know, any defect was like some misunderstanding or a little configuration thing or some minor stuff. It was pretty much zero defect for, for new code going forwards. Um, so then we had, um, but we're still having this high defect rate with the, uh, with, with the legacy code. And is that because it wasn't covered with, with tests at all and the legacy stuff? So where you were changing it, it was still being changed with, sort of without the, the protection of tests. 
I think that it just took time to get up the the coverage which was needed to lower the defects. So we started off right. with about four percent test coverage, and over six um, over six months. Um, oh, I forget exactly what the defect. Sorry, the uh, the coverage was, but we're probably talking about thirty odd percent at that at that period from all the legacy yeah. code, with about eighty odd percent for the new code. Um, but the real effect, and this is where the case study actually starts coming alive, um, is in the last three months of this twenty five percent investment period, because the six to nine month period. There was no new stuff. So we already covered the art of testing. We'd already done the training. We'd already put the frameworks in place. And now we were starting to build up a much higher level of test coverage. We're getting better mm. at the test, running better quality tests, uh, better collaboration in the team uh, across the different roles. And uh, we're starting to get better at measuring. Um, and uh, what we saw was that at the end of that nine months, the overall defect rate for the entire product, including new and legacy co- code, um, was down to 4%. So we had gone from a 35% defect rate, i.e. 35% of the entire 30-odd people's time was spent fixing defects, down to 4% of the time fixing defects in nine months. Awesome. And then the 25% that we had invested on an ongoing basis actually reduced down to a sort of few percent which we were investing in the continual improvement of the software because i was going to say because by the end of that nine months what did you actually have to do like you weren't training people you weren't building test data builder frameworks anymore so that would have tailed off as well absolutely so we've gone from a um we went from a 65 percent but decreasing amount of value we started investing um heavily in and went down to a 40 percent amount of value but then over the nine-month period went up until at the end of the nine-month period, we're talking about 94, 93, 94% of the team creating value. Yeah. And, of course, you've got happier customers, better motivated staff, and you've got a good quality product. It's a good story. It's a great story. I wonder like, about that ongoing maintenance effort as well, like what, the, what that sort of last, I don't know, five or ten percent that that would have been there ongoing was i guess that that was that something that you 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 measured or not so the um so this is the uh, ongoing sort of improvement so typically this was um uh, adding more kind of rigor into coding practice looking at some of the because there were various parts of the code base which uh, was slow to edit just because of quality issues um, and although we had it fairly well tested mm. it was still a bit clunky things that were because BDD testing is a bit like interface testing um, or um, integration testing in some ways there were still parts of the code which were fairly tightly coupled yeah. and hard to manage and so um, we started introducing a bit more unit tests more around trying to solve some of those tightly coupled problems. And the reason we were doing that is because we wanted to expand and make the application easier to use. So this was less around testing, more around quality of code, I guess. But the two are very much linked. So it was kind of increasing the unit test coverage as opposed to the BDD test coverage. But really we were doing that not because we were doing it for testing purposes. It was more about trying to decouple and make the code a bit better and cleaner. Yeah, and again, which is about decreasing the total cost of ownership of the thing and making it more possible to add more value to it quickly. 
Yeah, and the the, uh, the value there is exactly that. It was the second part because this was a strategic application where many other applications were actually being rolled into this. As the many many sort of tactical applications were being um, expired, if you like, and that functionality was then being added to the strategic platform. And so we really didn't want to be adding a whole load of really cool applications in based upon a big ball of mud. And so it was really about spending that time sort of trying to decouple some of that stuff, create some services inside the inside the sort of legacy stuff and start pulling that apart to make it more flexible so that it was ultimately more scalable. So that's what that's what really the ongoing thing was. So it wasn't so much about the BDD side, but just continually making the application more scalable and expansible. Yeah. Um, oh, it's also worth mentioning, just as a small point, that we actually worked out that we'd actually saved... Uh, several million pounds in terms of uh, a rewrite because there was before we started this project (laughs) because it was increasing and we knew this was going to be a strategic application we actually um, costed out what it would take to rewrite the application ground up and uh, it was going to be several million pounds so that was one of the options being considered was it and and they decided to gamble on trying the 25 percent thing for a while to see if that could fix it exactly and it paid off more than more than worth it completely yeah so um so i think it's a really good case because um uh, because what, what it shows to me is that to be able to scale stuff to be able to work collaboratively at scale with people as well as scaling an application technically it's really vital to have the enablers in place and bdd is one of those enablers which allows people to work across in large numbers on a code base that can scale for you know for something that's so important like a you know a trading app for a bank yeah um, and keep at it and i love the the clear investment model in the in the case study you know the way that it was looked at as let's make an investment um an investment decision because I, I, like we often talk about this with people when we're coming to them to talk about training and saying you know you need to realize it's not just a matter of taking the developers out for two days to do a training course you're also going to need to invest in their ongoing coaching because when they actually take those skills from the training and try and apply them on their own code bases they're going to find all kinds of things that are harder about that environment they're going to need to build the test data libraries are a really important part of it as well like having that investment in making it easy to set up different test cases and maybe kind of um, doing the, the the refactorings that you need to do to introduce those seams like Michael Feathers talks about. So there are places yeah. where you can decouple the app from the rest of the enterprise and inject mock data and all that kind of thing. Now, that kind of yeah. stuff takes work to get the system into a place where you can then start to reap the benefits. Yeah, and I think that's something that as developers um, we're not very good at actually, is building a business case around the things that we know to be true. So in the development community, we know that testing, automated testing, is a good thing. We know that it supports many other things on top of that. We know good quality code, decoupled code is a good thing. And when we try and explain this to business people, often it's, they, they kind of get it. They, they know that quality is important, but that all-important feature that needs to go out is more important. And so when, they're, when product owners are looking at prioritization, they have to compare apples with apples. And uh, as technical people, explaining this in anything other than a business case almost certainly results in 
uh, this stuff not being invested in, which means that technical people then take it upon themselves and own the quality issue to try and shoehorn this in somewhere, um, whether it's late at night or whether it's at the expense of other things, or they just go rogue and just do whatever they want, even regardless of what the business and the product owner wants, because we have a, we have a, a, a feeling of integrity. We want that it's an art form writing code. And you know it's it the right the thing to do, be. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But if we're not able to articulate that, then we're on our own and we've got to somehow shoehorn in this thing. I, 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 that's really interesting what you say about people sort of doing it late at night and things because I think that's that's really true. And, and um, I, I mean, I've definitely been there myself in, in the past. Um, and I think like learning for engineers learning how to express that need that they can see in in terms that are going to make sense to business people is a really useful thing to learn about i had this experience years ago where um i was working at a really small startup and we were having a retrospective in the kitchen in in this flat that we were renting and there was seven of us uh, including the ceo in the retrospective right it was the whole company having a retrospective and we were yeah. whinging about the build right as you do yeah. at your retrospective and Ian, the CEO, said, um, so, like, how much time do you reckon you're wasting a week on these problems you're whinging about with the build? And I sort of went, oh, I don't know. It, like, varies. He goes, just roughly, how many hours a week? So I went, oh, I didn't, like, maybe, for, say, six across the whole team. He goes, right, okay. And how long do you think it take you to fix it? Well, I don't know. It could, it could, take, us, could take us a week. He goes, right, okay, so if, it's, if you're wasting six hours a week and it would take you a week to fix it, then it's going to amortise, fixing it now is going to amortise over uh, whatever it is, whatever it works out at. Mm. Uh, I don't know what yeah. that is. Six weeks, yeah, eight five, weeks? Five, six something. days, something like yeah. that, yeah. yeah um, exactly. And, and, and my eyes just kind of lit up. I'm like, what does amortise mean? I think I understand what it must mean from what he's saying. And then he goes, so you should do it right now. Yeah. And and I sort of went, what? My CEO is telling me to stop building features and fix the build. This is weird. And then I realized what he was saying is that the longer we we suffered it, the more it was costing us. And yeah. the quicker we fixed it, the sooner we started to reap the benefits. Yeah. And, um, and I realized as well that he didn't care if my estimate of the cost and the payback was was approximate mm. he didn't need me to be all um precise about it he just wanted something roughly so he could think about it so yeah. we could we could see it for what it was and i i but my my sense with this and i wonder what you think about this is that engineers really struggle to do that sort of being approximate thing we want to yeah. you know, if we can't give the right answer we don't want to give an answer at all yeah, I think it comes back historically from being held tight to the estimates that we give that we know are approximate. <laughs> yeah. you know, what we do is inherently unpredictable work. So estimates really are finger in the air. Um, but it's important because we need to build a business case, otherwise we won't get the investment we need to do our craft. And, uh, and the people who hold the money, rightly so, want to know where they're spending their money and why should mm. they invest in this this weird techie kind of like mumbo jumbo that that's what they hear we've got to put it into a language which they understand and these these um uh, that the quality of the work that we do has to be put into a business case so that they can prioritize it against everything else and, and if at the end of the day it gets prioritized lower than something else well maybe that's that's fine um but as you say um this idea of technical debt um, it's very interesting because um, complexity 
in our code base is not linear. So the more, co more code that we add into the code base is actually almost exponential, at least geometric, in terms of the complexity. So the longer we wait yeah. actually increases geometrically the amount of time it takes to fix. And that's also compounded by the fact that once you work on a piece of code and then you go off and work on something else, it's very difficult to very quickly context switch back in and fix bugs that come back several weeks or months later on a piece of code you didn't work at, haven't worked on for months. Yeah, and yeah, even yeah. worse, if there's a turnaround of development staff, maybe that you're working on stuff that you've never even written. So fixing things quickly and getting a good business case in so that people understand that quality is a shared responsibility and that this is, this is from a financial perspective, it makes sense. Then we can start putting in place, first of all, if you're in a legacy situation, get the investment from a business sense, business case to actually solve that problem and then have it automatically with the definition of done or whatever else you've got there as a, as a checklist of quality so that you're actually building this quality in real time as you go along. Because it, it does not just make sense from us from a technical perspective, it makes total sense from a financial perspective. We just need the language to explain that, and then most business people will, will understand that and will yeah. get what we need. Do you think it, it can be done in less than nine months, or do you think nine months is kind of the minimum? Do you, have you seen it take longer? Or, you know, so I think this entirely depends depend on the code on? base. I think it's, it depends on the code base and the complexity. If we look at extremes, so if we, we're looking at a, a small startup who's been, uh, who's been working away for nine months and, and hacking out some code to get their product out to market, they've had some success, um, and now they want to put some testing in and put some more rigor around it because they've proved the idea in the market. In that scenario, I could imagine that it would take a lot less time because you've got mm. a smaller code base, a smaller number of people. If you've got a code base like we had, which was many, many, many millions of lines of code written over almost a decade with people who don't even work there anymore with some of that code base, that's going to take nine months. So it really depends on what you've got in front of you, I think. But even that, in, in less than a year, I think that's pretty good to have turned it around to, you know, 96% productive time yeah. on the code base. I think that's, uh, that's excellent. It's a testament to your powers, Mr. Powers. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Yeah. I had to get Obviously that. Obviously, it was somewhere. a team effort. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Yeah. It's powerful stuff, this. Very powerful stuff. All this, um, uh, it, it's actually essential for, for making businesses work in the future. I can't see how big companies working on large scale stuff, working on complex and adaptive, innovative solutions in a technical environment are going to be able to survive and continue producing innovation without the enabler of things like BDD and automated testing. It's ju it just not going to work for them. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not a nice to have. It's, you, if it, you want to compete, you need this stuff. It strikes me it's like a spirit level. Like people in the olden days used to put buildings together without spirit levels didn't they? Yeah. Um, but they were quite, kind of rickety and they only were, you know, three or four stories high at best. And mm. you can't build skyscrapers without, well, they don't use spirit levels no, now, they use level. laser levels, but, you know, mm. it's just it's just like modern practice, isn't it? And But we, I think that our industry is still in that stage where there are still quite a lot of people that are basically knocking together garden sheds. Yeah. 
and, and that's the thing. If, if your if your marketplace, uh, if to see, if to succeed in your marketplace, you need to be build the tallest building using your metaphor. And the best you can do with that automated testing is to build your rickety three-story thing, mm-hmm. and that's a push. Well, you're not going to survive in the marketplace. But if you've got automated testing and you're building quality, you can build layer upon layer and continue growing up. This is a great metaphor, man. It's this brilliant, is, uh, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. This, this works really well. Thanks. And you've got I'm the glad you like it. Up to the sky, yeah. Yeah, good. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about some of the other enablers quickly before we finish, because I'm interested. You sort of used that term, like BDD mm. is one enabler. What Because uh, I, I guess you, you're talking from the perspective of sort of a higher level of more like kind of executive coaching type of work mm. that you do what are some other yeah. enablers that you look for and, and help organizations to to discover and use well we have all different types of enablers uh, so we have tech enablers some of the things we've talked about and some of the common things there is not just about automated testing but about being able to deploy things like a b testing in the marketplace getting data back to, to so that we can mm-hmm. actually base decisions as close to real time about what we're doing um, uh, one of the key enablers is obviously thinking about small batches. Um, so having small batches of work, small batches of value that we can actually create, get some feedback on, and use that to adapt. Um, so this comes from the belief that uh, things are unpredictable and that we're working in a, um, in a environment where the very code releases or the product releases that we're pushing out to the market, the information we get back for that is going to change what the next release is we put out there. So for that, we want small batches, fast turnaround times. Um, Other enablers are um, good leadership that actually understands what it means to be autonomous. So we're working with an environment now where it's uh, not only complex technically, but socially. And so decisions need to be made quickly and at the point at which the work is actually being done. So if we don't have autonomy in our teams, which is one of the basic presets of things like Scrum or Kanban, then uh, if we don't have that autonomy, then we're simply not, about, uh, we're not able to turn around things quick enough and we have decisions being made by people who don't understand the problems. Mm-hmm. And so for that, it takes a certain type of leadership mindset. So having a leadership mindset and coaches and uh, coach, coaching for leadership, that kind of thing, is an enabler for us to be able to deliver the right thing. So there's a bunch of these different enablers within an agile ecosystem uh, which need to be in place so that we can actually deliver things quickly and the right things, the right things quickly, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah, I could talk all day about that. But uh, I could talk to you all afternoon about time as well, but we shouldn't. We must have other things we should do. We should round this off. And I'm sure the listeners have got other things to do as well. Um, Perhaps we'll have you back on again to talk about uh, the, the subject of autonomy and... Uh, leadership that enables autonomy is uh, dear to oh, my heart to. at the moment. Um, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Any other things you want to mention to the listeners right now before we before we head off on our merry way? Uh, I think the only thing is just to reiterate the key point here is that as developers, it's our uh, it's our responsibility to write good quality code, and we can't do that unless we're in, unless we have that investment, and we can't expect people to invest in that unless we explain it in the right way. So all I'd do is just encourage listeners to really think about what it is they're doing and why and how to articulate that to your product owners to get the right level of investment so you can so it's a shared quality between the whole team. Right, because if you know it matters, there must be a business case for doing exactly. it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 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 All right, thanks a lot, Simon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks See you that. soon, I hope. Take yeah, I look care. look forward to that. Take care then. Bye.